Hey, this morning, if you want to grab a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 25. There are some Bibles in front of you. If you'd like to take that Bible home with you, if that's in your mind right now, that's okay. We allow that. If you do not have an ESV version of the Bible, uh, it's not any better than any other version. It's just the one I like, so you can take that home with you if you don't have one. But we're going to be in Psalm 25. And in the summertime, we're walking through some of the Psalms. And the reason we do that is each Psalm contains one message. And so if you miss from week to week, it kind of connects into there as we jump into the Psalm, Psalm 25, because this is a psalm in which David is seeking guidance because life, life is in need of deliverance. Life is in need of Things are not going the way that he expected. His enemies are getting the best of him. His loneliness is racking his soul. He talks about how lonely he feels. He is stressed, he's burdened, he's worried about his kids, he's worried about life, and he's crying out to God for deliverance. And in this, in this prayer in Psalm 25, we discover what guidance looks like, that this really is a prayer for guidance. As he's facing these challenges in life, as he's facing enemies, as he's facing loneliness, brokenness, stress, all the challenges that he sees, he's crying out to God for guidance, and we're going to discover what guidance looks like. And before we read it, when I was a kid, this was our multimedia, right? When I was a kid, our multimedia were these books. They were these adventure books. And you had the opportunity to choose which direction the character went. I don't know if you read any of these, but when I was a kid, these were huge. So you'd be reading along, and you're reading this story. You're walking down a path, and suddenly these wolves are chasing after you. And you look off in the distance, and there's that little cottage, you know, with a little smoke coming up, a little wisp of smoke coming out of the cottage. You notice there's a woman there. And so you run towards the cottage, and the woman comes out to you, and then it asks a question. Do you want to go into the cottage, or are you going to pass by? If you want to go in the cottage, go to page 20. And I always want to go in the cottage, right? This is the way out. This is the way of escape. Here's the choice that I'm going to make. And so I go to page 20, and it says, she's a witch. (laughs) The wolves are her minions, and she turns you into a newt. Game over. That's page 20. I should have gone to page 25. I should have walked past. And if I, I think as a kid, if I'd only known, if I'd only known the right decision to make, I wouldn't have gone in that house and things would have turned out well. And when it comes to God's guidance, I think we approach it a lot like those adventure books. There is a right choice. And there's one. And if I don't pick the thing behind door number one, there could be a donkey back behind door number one. Right? Let's make a deal. No? That's, that's taking us back, isn't it? Remember that? You, you had these doors, and they'd say, hey, do you want what's in the envelope, or do you want what's behind? And they had that music, door number one. And you're like, what's he going to choose? And then they open the door, and there's this donkey. Wah, wah. And you pick the wrong choice. And for many people, when it comes to pursuing God's will, they see it as, let's make a deal. They see it as adventure books. There's one right path. You got one second to think about it. You're going to go into the home of that lady or you're going to walk past. If I make the wrong choice, then suddenly I'm on plan B and I'm out of God's will for my life. Is that the way you see it? See, when we study the way that, when we see the way that Scripture describes how we discover God's will, what's unique is that God's will is less about something he gives. It's more about something he does. God's guidance is first about what he does. It's less about what he gives. 
And if you don't grasp that, you're going to get frustrated because most messages on God's guidance are about what he does. They key in on that because that's what you want. You want the answer. You want the map. You want the which door do I choose because we're pragmatic. We're Americans. Does it work? Hey, I don't want theoretical. I don't want theory. I don't want theology. I want pragmatism. And so we want something that works. But when it comes to God, he's less concerned and this is hard for us to understand, about the exact decision we make, he's more concerned about the person we become. There's a kind of person that God can guide, and there's a kind of person he can't. There's a kind of person who is ready to hear God's voice and respond to that, and in those decisions, what God's more concerned about than, hey, who should I marry, which college should I go to, which job should I take? God is more concerned about the person you're becoming than just the decision you make. Because you can make the right decision out of the wrong heart, and it's the wrong decision. Or you can make the wrong decision in your mind at that moment, but God can use that in your life to get you to the right place. And I think if you're honest about life and you look at your life and the direction of your life, you see that sometimes I thought I was making the wrong decision, but it led to the right result. And sometimes I thought I made the wrong decision or I made the right decision, but it turned out bad. How do we know which choice to make? And so as we look at God's guidance, I think in some ways we've got to set aside this need just to know what the answer is and to recognize God's more concerned with who you're becoming than simply which choice to make. And here's how I know that's true. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, there were no sermons on how to discover God's will for your life. That should tell you something. When Martin Luther and Spurgeon and all these great communicators, they had no how-to sermons on discovering God's will. Now, when you go to a conference today, you know which, which room is going to be the fullest? It's the one about discovering God's will for your life. There's something about us as Americans, as pragmatists, as Westerners. We want to know the answer, and we believe God is the secret to unlocking a future that is my preferred future. We have to die to self a little bit there and get into Scripture, which has a different mindset, that God is not as concerned about the momentary decisions as he is about the person you're becoming, that his guidance, his guidance is less about what he gives. It's more about who you're becoming. So you got that? That kind of lays out a foundation that's, that's maybe new in some ways, but that's where uh, David is in Psalm 25. So let's jump into Psalm 25, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Psalm 25, a psalm of David. Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly, I did it, I said it right, wantonly treacherous. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? 
Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of the heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hate they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. A simple Bible technique, if you want to discover what a passage is about, simply look at the words that are repeated. Really, studying the Bible isn't a challenge in the sense that if you can observe simply facts about a passage, you'll discover what it's about. And in this passage is, um, I was about to say Paul, this is not Paul, this is David. As David is praying for guidance, there are words that show up, and I'll be honest, One of them I don't like. Because when I got a decision to make, I'm feeling me a little bit of urgency. And God doesn't seem to be taking on the kind of urgency I think he should be taking on. Because there are two doors in front of me. There are three paths in front of me. There is a path I need to take. And God, I need the answer now. And I don't know if you noticed it. Three times he said, wait. Are you serious? God, I want your will for my life, which means I want the map. I want to know what's behind door number one and door number two and what's in the guy's pocket. Am I going to get money? Is it going to work out? Is there going to be a don't? What's the outcome? God, show me the outcome. I want pragmatism. I want to know the way to go. And God says to me in those moments of decision, I want you to wait. Why? There's something God can do in waiting that he can't do in making decisions. There's something that God has to do in us as we wait for him with the pressure of that decision upon us that he can't do when we're simply getting the answer and making that decision on our own. See, as we jump down in the passage, there's a promise of guidance. So first of all, there's a promise of guidance in verses 12, 13, and 14. So let's jump back in. In verse 12, he says it this way. Who is the man who fears the Lord... Him, God will instruct. He will instruct in the way that he should choose. So there is a path. There is a choice. I'm not suggesting that there isn't a right way to go. But notice this verse 13. His soul shall abide, which means to live, to dwell in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes, him, he makes known to them his covenant. Now, notice again, there's another word that's repeated. It's the word fear. So here's someone that needs to make a decision. Is God saying, and is David concerned about the decision, or is he concerned about the heart of the man making the decision? I mean, notice the text. He's saying, hey, God, I got two people to marry, three people. I mean, that'd be a good day, I guess, if you got three. Or I got two jobs. I don't know which way to go. And and David's not beginning at that point. Instead, God's saying to him, David, what I'm concerned about more than the outcome of the decision is the heart 
to which you're approaching me. And he says, the one who makes the right decision, first and foremost, is the one who fears the Lord. That's the New Testament way of saying walks by faith. Because sometimes we get caught up on fear. I know. We kind of get caught up on fear. But if God showed up, we would fear. We would tremble, which means to be in awe. When I'm up on one of those mountains and I hear a lightning strike, I mean, that's, that's fear. That's tremble. That's awe. In the presence of God, the fear of the Lord, on the one hand, is an awe for who God is, but a joyful delight in that he loves me. <laughs> right? It's two things. That's on the one hand, it's a, an awe and a, a majesty for who God is, but a joyful delight in that God is inviting me to know him. It means to walk by faith. So what David is concerned about in this moment is not so much the answer to the question. It's not to get the map and get the directions, the pragmatic truth of where I need to go. He's focused on the heart that God can lead. Now, the challenge is that's not where we are when we need to make decisions. At least I'm not. See, when I need to make a decision, I'm focused on the answer. And that's why my prayers are kind of somewhat like David's prayer here because this prayer is really all over the map. You know, when scholars study prayers like this, they say, you know, there's really not an outline for this. It's just kind of a mess. Because when you need deliverance, you're just all over, right? God, protect me from my enemies. Protect me from the stress. Protect me from me. Protect me from what I did in my 20s and my 30s. You notice that? He said, forgive me for my acts as a youth. Because sometimes we assume what I did in my 20s probably messed up my 40s. And because I was out of God's will in my 20s and my 30s, then my 40s, my 50s, 60s, I must be on plan E. Because I've got to be out of God's will for, for my life because I have made so many mistakes and gone down so many wrong paths. There's no way God can keep guiding me. Because often when we approach the will of God, we think it, it's one choice. It's one decision. If I make it wrong, just like that adventure book, I'm going to find out she's a witch. The minions are after me. And the game is over. And we say that's the end. And thankfully, God says there's more to the story. God is greater than your wrong decisions. God is greater than your sinful desires. And even when we go in the wrong path, God uses it to cultivate a heart that seeks after him. Now, let me prove that from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Some of you already have it up there, but Ephesians 2.10. And Ephesians 2.10 says that, uh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So what's our identity? We are God's workmanship. In the Greek, it's this word poema, which means poetry. Men, you are God's poetry. <laughs> Embrace that identity. You are God's artwork. I'm not great when it comes to artwork. I tried to play a guitar, but I always say I play a guitar like uh, an engineer. I want to get it right. But true artists, their personality shows up. I mean, honestly, true artists, you can listen to the same song by two different artists, totally different. The song sounds totally different because a true artist, a true gifted musician, their personality shows up in the way that they play the song. Well, imagine this. You are God's workmanship, which means his personality is showing up in you, and specifically in the works he wants you to do. Notice it says in the text that there are things he's prepared in advance for us to do. So there is a path we need to take. There's a decision we need to go down, and there is a result that he wants to produce in us, which is less about the decisions being right and more about a heart that's cultivated around him. And now let me explain what that means when it comes to the works he wants us to do. 
See, when you're with somebody, do you just want someone to make the right decisions or do you want someone to express the right love? Those are two very different things because the works we're called to do is not just making the right decisions at the right moment. It's being the right person at the right moment. Because, see, when I'm, when I'm in stress, I don't need the right answer. I need the right person. I need the right kind of love. Because love can show up in truth and knowledge, but often love needs a little bit of skin on it. It needs to come with a hug, with affirmation. Hey, I'm not going to leave you in this. This is the direction you need to go. And the works that God has called us to do is not just simply to guide people in the right direction, but to be the kind of person that can guide them to him. And so what does it mean for God to guide us? First of all, it means we've got to seek the guide instead of just the guidance. We've got to let go of the pragmatic outcomes and focus so much on the conclusion and say, God, in this moment, would you draw my heart to yours? Because that's where David is. And then second, we need a heart that's satisfied in his truth. A heart that's satisfied in his truth, and again, not just in the map and the conclusion. See, jump again back in the passage in verse 3. I mean, in verses 1 through 3. Because the beginning of this psalm, David is really saying to God, though I have all these situations in my life that are a mess, change me. Don't just change the circumstances, but in this circumstance, change me. So watch this, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. God, give me a heart that patiently seeks after you. Now, what does that heart look like? Well, verses 4 and 5 give you a picture of how you know that if you're getting there. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all day long. Notice what he's saying. God, show me your ways. Now, in this moment, his ways, God's ways, probably don't apply to David's decisions. Isn't that frustrating? You know, when you're talking with somebody, instead of giving you the answer that you want, they start talking about something completely different. And often that's where God leads. Now, let me step into that a little bit in my own story. You know, when we were in the process of determining if God was calling us to Bergen Park Church, it was a very strange process. I don't recommend going, doing it the way I did it. Because in some ways, I look at the way that I pursued this calling here, and I did it wrong. Let me just kind of be right. At least I thought it was wrong. Because what happened, it was a Monday, and I set out a resume because I was depressed. I get depressed on Mondays, just be honest here. Because um, I sometimes look at myself and I go, no one got anything from what you said. No one's listening. What are you doing? That's the kind of negative thoughts that run through a pastor's mind, just letting you in on that. And on that Monday, I sent out this resume, and I had no idea what Bergen Park Church was. Evergreen? It sounds green. I didn't know it was in the map. I didn't know anything about it, but I sent out this resume, and I started to have a conversation with the, with the people. And in that process of, of having those conversations, I found that I was in this strange place that I wasn't determining to leave, but God had started to use a decision that I probably would have thought was unwise. You know, if you're going to change careers, right? not careers, but change employment opportunities, you probably should pray about that a lot. And if you're going to leave churches, right, that should come with a lot of fasting. 
you know, deep spiritual, you know, searching out. It shouldn't come on a whim. It shouldn't be something you do just in the moment. God can't use mistakes like that. And yet, as I began to ask the Lord, and I, every day I would write down this question, God, what do you want me to do? You know what? He never answered the question. Because every time, every morning, I, for 30 days, I told the search team, guys, can you give me 30 days? Meaning, can you back off for just a minute? Because I'm feeling pressure. And I don't know what to do. And every day, every morning, I'd get up and I'd write this question, God, what do you want me to do? And you know what? He never addressed the question directly. He always showed me something he wanted to change. I was like, God, that's not what I'm asking. I don't know if you're with me on this. Is there, a, is there a misconnection here? I'm getting a little static. I'm asking you if I should leave the church I've been at for 11 years, and these people love us, and we love them, and then we have this deep relationship. Should I do that? You know, and, and during the whole time, he, his goal wasn't really, I found, to answer the question directly, but to cultivate me in the kind of person that could make that decision. He began to address my heart. He began to show things about my marriage. God, I'm talking about my career, not my marriage. You're on the wrong page. He showed me things about my children. He showed things about me. God started to address things in my life that were necessary to change if that decision was going to be made. What is he showing me? See, he didn't show me my person, his personal will for my life. No, he took me back to his sovereign will and to his moral will. See, when we talk about the will of God, there are different layers, if you could think. The first is the sovereign will of God, which is God being God. That God is going to carry out things according to his character. That's his sovereign. Some say providential will. That's a big word, just meaning that God's in control. That's something I can't change. But then there's God's revealed or moral will. That's what he's talking about in verses 4 and 5. David is saying, make me the kind of person that I fall in love with your directions and your guidance in my life. Now, I'm going to jump back in that story, but here's what that looks like. If you go to Hebrews chapter 5, in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews describes how God's moral, his revealed will, can capture us and direct our life. So in Hebrews 5 verse 13, it says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words of righteousness. Now, the words of righteousness are the Bible. He's saying there are those who are unskilled. Now, to be unskilled means you're drinking milk. To be skilled and mature in Scripture means to, to be eating meat. And he goes on and explains that since he's a child. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So in your waiting, as you're waiting for that decision, God's not waiting for busy work. <laughs> he doesn't give you math problems to solve just to solve them. He's saying there's a process at work. And what God is doing is training us to be mature. Now, what does maturity look like? It's not milk. Now, often when people go to church, I'll hear them say this. I like this church because they give me meat. That's not possible on Sunday. On Sunday, all you get is milk. Now, let me explain why. Because what is meat? Well, that's what I have to eat so that I can communicate milk. Because what does a mother do? She eats meat. Or vegetables, if vegetarian. She eats vegetables. Out of those vegetables, she processes, and to that child, she brings life. See, that child is actually living off the life of the mother. On Sunday morning, if this is the only time you get in Scripture, you're just living off my devotional time. God's much better than that. God is much deeper than that, and he wants us to train. What does it say? To train ourselves 
By getting into his word, it begins to train us. Now, here's a picture of what that looks like. Recently, I had a discussion with some of my elders, and they had this brilliant spiritual idea of having a co-ed softball team. And they asked me to be on the team because I'm certain they wanted the talent. It's not because they were, they were having a hard time finding people. Don't, don't go there. But they wanted me to be a part of the team. Now, the last time I played softball, here's what happened. Uh, my powers were diminished. I hadn't realized this because I hadn't been practicing. See, back when I was younger, I'd play center field pretty quick. And I didn't have to think. I see the ball come off the bat, I knew I got to back up, I got to go left, I got to go right. And then I was playing softball as an older guy, and there wasn't constant practice anymore. And there was this moment, and this was the first time it happened. I thought this was the weirdest thing in the world. My mind was speaking, my body was still. And I remember thinking, I should be moving right now. And when I started moving, I was moving forward, but I knew I had to go backwards because the ball went way over my head, and I'm running forwards. Now, why is that? Because I hadn't been trained. There was no discernment. My mind was alert. My body was disconnected. And when we're disconnected from God's word, we can't respond because we're not trained in that moment to see what's happening. And here's the unique thing about the word guidance in the, in the Hebrew. The word guidance has a root word. And that root word comes from a Hebrew word that means rope. To have guidance, God's guidance means to have God's rope. Now, what were ropes used for? Ropes were used for navigation. So when you had a ship, you used ropes for navigation. So when a storm came, you said, hey, get the sails down. Because if the sails are up, that's going to do a damage to the ship. We need to drop the ropes. we got to move things so we can respond. We can discern what's happening. Or if the, the winds are good, we need to raise the sails. Because, again, God's more concerned about us determining and understanding the events that we're in and responding in a way that's in accordance with what he says than just giving us the answer in the moment. You know, it's one thing for the guys in the dugout to yell, Freeman, run back, as it is for me in that moment to discern what's happening. And God is more concerned, again, about the heart that he's cultivating in you as you make decisions as he is about the decisions itself. What is God after? A heart that seeks him as the guide, not just the guidance, and a heart that's saturated in his truth. How did Jesus make right decisions? You can say, well, he's Jesus, you know. <laughs> he had the master's degree before he took the class. No, his heart was satisfied and saturated in the word of God. And then second, there's, uh, third, there's got to be a willingness to obey. As we seek God's guidance, there's got to be a willingness to obey. Watch this in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs. And notice, the only person he instructs are sinners. God doesn't instruct us because we're good, but because he is good. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way, and he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Again, if we're going to just study the Bible, what's the word that's repeated over twice in this passage is the humble. It's not just that God guides, but he guides a kind of person. First of all, the one that fears him, that's walking by faith, and then second, the word humble in the Hebrew here means one who's learned from the experiences of life. This is different from humility that's just a virtue. This is humility that comes through hardship. And he's saying the one that God guides is the one that's learned to obey. See, when I was trying to discover, God, where do you want to lead us? Do you want us to come to Bergen Park? Do you want us to leave Grace Covenant Church? We've been here 11 years. These people are amazing. We've seen God do amazing things. 
Here's what he began to do. He began to show me my disobedience. I'm like, once again, God, we're watching different movies. This is not the page I want to turn to. I want the answer to the riddle. And what he started addressing in my life was he's saying, you want guidance here? Well, what's going on over there? Have I guided you in these areas? There's areas of your life you know the will of God. You know the sovereign will. You know even God's personal will. You won't obey me here. And if you won't obey me here, why would I trust that you're going to obey me in the direction you need to go? And so I began to search him. And really what God began to do is to purify some desires in my life, to purify some disciplines and to reinstall some disciplines in my life that I began to seek him with a greater passion and desire. And when I got to the point that I made, needed to make a decision, you know, I turned to where all good men go, to my wife. And the reason I turned to my wife is I had some friends. I had some friends in my life who were pastors. And when you need to make a decision and you're a pastor, you turn to other pastors and say, guys, what would you do? And they, this was what they said. What does Melissa say? I go, that's not the question I'm looking for. I'm asking you, how am I going to make this decision? And what I found is the Lord had already begun to guide her long before the decision was ever need to be made. We're sitting on the couch, and she says, you know, tell me more about this church. I think we really need to begin praying about this. And I realized in that moment, you know, God's guidance, it can be through his word. It's always in accordance with his word. It can be in a lot of different ways, but often it's through the people around us who he's speaking to. Now, he's going to speak in accordance, right? We talked about a heart that's guided is one that's saturated with God's word. But sometimes the reason we don't hear from God is we're not listening to each other. And there are people in this room who have made a decision, who should I marry? <laughs> they made a decision, what school should I go to? What job should I take? There are people around you that God has already downloaded goodness into their life. And these are people who are mature. What's maturity? Maturity is a willingness to seek the word, to seek God's voice, and then pour that out into the lives of others. You know what maturity is in the church? It's a parent. It's a parent. Maturity is not about the accumulation of knowledge for dust to settle. No, maturity is about a heart that wants to pass on truth to the next generation and wants to see them cultivate a heart that loves God, which means, ready for this? The church is not about you and know what? The Bible isn't either. I know I'm saying a lot of wrong things today, right? The Bible isn't about us. You know what it's about? It's about a God that can captivate my heart. It's about a God who is so amazing and good that my desires start to fall in line with his desires so that his word begins to become a food, a source of life that gives life and direction to where I need to go. You know what God's concerned about? Not the decision. He's Concern, one, that you seek him as a guide. Two, that you be saturated in his truth. And then three, that when he says something, you'd be willing to respond. And here's the last thing. The life that God guides is one who is, who is really captivated by grace. The life that God guides is one that's captivated by grace. In verse 10, and I wish we could spend all, all our time in these verses, but in verse 10... He says this in an amazing way. He says, all the paths, notice the language he's using. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, just realize, he just spoke to the humble. Realize, the humble are those who are humble because of the experiences they've had in life. The suffering, the rejection, the wrong decisions that they've made. 
the hardship and experiences, the reason they're humble, it's they're humble because through life they've been, they've been humbled, they've been cultivated. And he's saying to those that have been humbled by life, that path of humility, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. That as you were walking through that experience, you thought you were abandoned, you thought you got it wrong, but you were on a path, even in your wrong decisions, of steadfast love and faithfulness. That should start to blow your mind a little bit. He's saying in this, because notice the language, David's constantly asking God to forgive him. And the scripture says that God only guides the sinner so that God can use my sin, he can use my wrong decisions, he can use my right decisions, and in all those things, he has a steadfast path, a path of love and faithfulness. What does that mean? What he's describing here is the reason God guides you isn't because you're good, it's because he's good. The reason he guides us isn't because we get it right, it's because he is right. The language of Psalm 25 is the language of covenant. That God has entered into a covenantal relationship with us. And the thing that's most helpful in a covenantal relationship is to say, I was wrong. That's what marriage is. What does that do? It gets you right. And in making decisions in life, sometimes what we need to say to God is, God, I followed my desires instead of listening to your law. I was wrong. Now, sometimes we think repentance is death. Because, see, repentance is to admit I was wrong. Well, if I admit I'm wrong, then maybe I'm not a good Christian, or maybe people will see me differently. God is not as concerned about your pride. God is concerned about a heart that's yielded to him. And what repentance is, is every time you see the depths of your brokenness, your wrong decisions, your wrong passions, what drove you towards your disobedience, every time you see that, you see a deeper vision of God's love. The problem is you're trying to manage sin, not worship God. See, if you're trying to manage sin, then your sin is just keeping you from a better life. But see, what, what David's doing in this psalm is every time he sees his brokenness, his wrong decisions, his wrong path, he says, God, forgive me. And then he realizes God does forgive him. God does love him. God does care for him. God is pursuing. God hasn't given up on him. He hasn't walked away from him. And that's why David throughout this psalm is saying, my God, you are my God. I put my trust in you. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't guide you because you're good. He guides you because Jesus is good. The reason that God guides us isn't because, hey, I got five out of ten right, 50%, right? If I could just do that in the Christian life, I'd be, I'd be walking pretty strong right there. Now, the reason he guides you is because Jesus Christ got them all right. That we are clothed, as Scripture says, in the righteousness of Christ. As Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. In the life I live in the body, I live in the fear of God. That's what he says. I live by faith. What's faith? It's to be in awe of God and joyful delight in who he is and what he's done for me. I've been crucified with Christ, so I'm not living. I'm not making my decisions on my own. I'm surrendering all things to him because I know what God wants for me is that I would know he's my guide, not just the guidance. I would surrender my heart in obedience to him by examining my life and saying, where can I surrender to you? And being willing to do what he says as I'm saturated by his word. Hey, there's a story I want to close with. We're going to celebrate communion, but I don't know if you know the name Elizabeth Elliot or if that means anything to you. But Jim Elliot was a missionary. Elizabeth was a missionary. There was a group of missionaries that went to Ecuador. And in Ecuador, they sought to share the gospel with the natives, the Indians that were present there and Jim and his 
missionary friends went out to these communities and they tried to make contact. They would fly around. Actually, there's a great movie on this, um, End of the Spear. It's still on Amazon Prime. If you go home today, want to have a little lunch, kind of get inspired, watch The End of the Spear. Excellent, uh, excellent movie. But anyway, I, I, I got off topic. Oh, yes. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book, <laughs> End of the Spear, yeah, movie. And it's on guidance. And if you think of anyone that needs guidance, you think of, uh, maybe Jim Elliot got it wrong, right? I mean, he died on a beach in Ecuador, killed by the very Indians. That he, I mean, maybe he didn't hear God right. That's not the outcome that God should lead us to. But Elizabeth Elliot in this book was describing this story. There were these explorers from America, right? And, and maybe they were a little Amer- American in the sense they were prideful. And they came to her and said, hey, all we want is a map. And she kind of laughed. All we want is directions. Because she was this woman that knew this community. She knew this area. She knew how to hike. She knew how to this in- entire wild wilderness. She knew how to navigate. But she also knew that directions are not enough. Hey, if you're in a city with straight lines and every street has a number and it's easy, A, B, C, D, E, F, G... That's easy to navigate, but when you're in a jungle and you don't know the animals, you don't know the birds, you don't know anything about that, you don't need directions, you need a guide. And she said to him, I'd rather give you a guide than tell you where to go, because if I tell you where to go, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to doubt the directions, and you're going to give up. Now, they didn't want it. They just wanted the directions. She never saw them again. She didn't know if they got where they needed to, but it said something to her that as she was looking at her life and wondering why would my husband, why would he have been sacrificed? Why would these things happen? That God didn't simply give her directions because if he did, she would never have been in Ecuador. No, God gave himself. He gave his son. He gave Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit to be our guide, to reveal the truth as we need it, even when sometimes it seems like we're heading the wrong direction. And the reason God does that is because we are clothed in God's goodness. God guides us not because we get it right or we are right in that moment. God guides us because through Christ, he has made us right. And when you realize that, when that's your foundation, you're going to boldly come before God in those moments of decision. And you're going to realize, hey, before I really get my personal will in line, I need to get God's sovereign will. I need to see him for who he is. And then I need to see his moral will in my life. I need to surrender and say, God, I want to follow you because I'm seeking to follow you in every aspect of life. And I just want to bring this under your authority. You know, the way we do that really is to remember the gospel. Because, again, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And because we failed, he died the death that we should have died. And on the cross, Jesus took upon himself our brokenness, our sin, so that we might be clothed in his righteousness, which means we have a bold standing before God to the extent that Ephesians says, no matter what decisions you've made, no matter how bad life has gone, no matter what wrong paths you have taken, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with what? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. You already got the guidance. You already have what you need. And everything for life and godliness is wrapped up in faith in the gospel. And if we truly trust God for who he is and what he's done, that truth would begin to guide us because we have what we need. Hey, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. I want to invite those that are going to serve communion to come forward. And I want to pray for us if we do that. But let me explain. As we celebrate communion, 
we're really rehearsing the gospel. We're rehearsing what Christ has done, and in that moment, asking God once again to be our Savior, our Lord. That so often when we look at challenges in life, we run to false saviors. We run to comfort to make things right. The reason sin is attractive is it's at times desirable. It gives us some kind of experience. But to truly put Christ as our Savior, he has to be our Savior not just for heaven, but for Monday. For what's going to happen on Wednesday afternoon for my marriage, for my life, I need to surrender all things to him and know his goodness and know that he wants good for me. So as we come to the table, I just encourage you, before you come forward, just to ask God, Lord, what is, what is it you're addressing in my life? Where do you want me to change? And to be willing to surrender that to him. The way we celebrate communion is as you come forward as God leads, you'll take that bread, uh, that cracker actually, and somebody will say, this is Christ's body that's broken for you. You'll take it and dip it in the cup, and they will say, this is Christ's blood that was shed for you. And we do that in remembrance of him. So let me pray for us. Father, I pray for those, for us just today as we sit here, this message could be really unsatisfying because we've got the immediacy of a decision. We've got the pain of a brokenness in life where we've gone in the wrong path and now we're seeking the right. And yet, Lord, you want to use that anxiety that David shared, that sense of loneliness, that sense of despair, that sense that everything's against me. And instead of driving us into ourselves, you want us to lose ourselves and in finding you. That if we want to find life, we've got to lose it, which means to fear you to worship you, to see you in awe and wonder, to have joyful delight. Father, on the one hand in your holiness, but also in your mercy and sending your son to die for us, that we would be raptured as we taste and see that the Lord is good. So Father, I pray today for anyone that hasn't just truly invited you into their life, that they would cry out, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I walk before you on no other foundation and the cross of Christ and the resurrection that gives me newness of life. And so as we celebrate communion, Father, would we surrender, would we submit, would we dare to trust the God who can guide us into all truth? Teach us this morning, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's celebrate what God has done.